Hey, welcome to the show. It's another Thursday, which means it's a new episode of the Training Business Podcast. I have a question for you. Have you ever asked your audience how they rate your ability to listen to them? Are you conscious of your ability to, let's call it, listen critically? Because it's tempting to feel that as a trainer, as a coach, as a consultant, as a facilitator, that you have to do all the speaking because that's what people pay you for. But it's not entirely true because some of the best feedback I've been given in my years facilitating and, and training is not based upon something that's come out of my mouth. It's actually based upon creating an environment where people feel that they can speak, that they can be heard, listened to, and understood. And if you want to get people to listen to you, thinking of the principle of reciprocity here, you have to start by listening to them. And today's guest is an expert on this. His name is Julian Treasure. He's a five times TED speaker. He's written a book all about this subject, and he's going to give you some key tips to speak so people want to listen to you. And that's fundamental if you're running a training, coaching, facilitation business. In today's episode, how you can learn critical listening the seven deadly sins of speaking, the four foundations of powerful speaking, the importance of sound in your workshops and trainings, how sound can help your business productivity, not just when you're working with people, but often on your own, why you should care about what Julian calls HAIL, H-A-I-L, and RASA, and how you can get a special offer or avail of a special offer on Julian's course. This is the Training Business Podcast. Here's the music. And welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Hey, welcome to the show. My name is Mark. I'm the host of the Training Business Podcast. And this is the weekly show every Thursday for freelance trainers, for freelance facilitators, for independents, people running their own training business, training consultancy, facilitation business, just like you and me all around the world. And we have listeners all around the world. And the goal of this show and every episode is to help you to start to grow and, of course, to scale your business, which is why we've got guests on every week. And sometimes it's a solo episode. But today it's with a five times TED speaker called Julian Treasure. And Julian's going to give you some key tips today and helping you to be the kind of person that people want to listen to. Julian, hi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. Pleasure to be here. It was actually recommended to me that I have you on the show. And the reason is that um, you have a reputation as being someone who can help people to to be better listeners, which is so key. We all work, people listening to this work in the facilitation or training business. So what we have really is the power of our voice and it's the ideas in our head and how we communicate those. And I'm minded of the great Sir Ken Robinson, who was on the show uh, two years ago, unfortunately he passed away. He's one of the few people that, you know, comes to mind when I think of great, great speakers, people who can combine humor, a compelling message and science, which is often a tricky thing to do. But you're no, um, you're no um, slouch yourself. I mean, you, you're a five times TED speaker. That, that's fantastic, phenomenal. And you, of all people, know how to help people to communicate so people want to listen. Um, and of course, that's something that you've developed a brand around. Um, you're, you're the author of How to Be Heard, and you've a course called How to Speak So People Want to Listen. And there's a firm correlation between listening and speaking. And of course, as I said, as facilitators, as coaches, as trainers, people who rely on their ability to communicate ideas, we need to be really better listeners. Why, why is listening so fundamental, do you feel, to people in the line of work that we do, that we are in? Well, listening and speaking are actually related very closely, as you said, Mark, in a circle. And that's at the core of my work, this circular relationship. Most people think it's a straight line. I speak, you listen, but it's not that simple because the way you listen affects the way I speak. The way I speak affects the way you listen. It's a kind of organic, ever-changing relationship. And it happens inside of a context. And that very often is not very helpful. It could be noise, poor acoustics, 
bad transmission systems, whatever it might be. So those three things are core and they absolutely fundamentally affect our happiness, our effectiveness and our well-being. How, how well we can express ourselves, how well we listen to other people and how well we design the context in which that is happening. And most of us, because we're very unconscious about sound, forget to think about the context. It's taken as a given. You know, I see people standing in a street with somebody drilling next to them, yelling at each other. And I think, why don't you just move? <laughs> but we forget to do that because we go so unconscious about the sound around us. So, yes, listening is absolutely critical. And it's the one that's the least paid attention to, the least valued. You know, if you think about our education system, reading, writing, we teach those. But there are four ways we communicate, reading, writing, speaking, listening, and two for the eyes, two for the ears, two send, two receive. But we obsess about teaching, reading, and writing. You know, it's a scandal if a child leaves uh, school unable to read or write. But unfortunately, millions leave school every year, never having been taught how to use this amazing instrument that we all possess, the human voice, which is extraordinary, and even less so having been taught how to listen consciously. You know, we collapse hearing, listening. People think listening is a capability. It's not. It's a skill. And it's a skill that we can practice and master. And the benefits are huge. You know, listening is how we learn. Yeah, I think of, I think of um, hearing as something which is, let's say, a physical process. It's something that your, your ears naturally do. Um, if you're fortunate to have full hearing, your ears pick up on sound waves. But listening is a conscious choice, isn't it? Yes. I mean, we do two things when we listen. It's very different from hearing. You know, hearing is our primary warning sense. It's very important. It goes very deep, very fast into the old parts of the brain. You hear everything, including what's behind you, which is why it's our warning sense. But when you listen, you do two things. You select some things to pay attention to out of all the things you hear, and then you interpret them or make them mean something. So my definition of listening is making meaning from sound. And that's a mental process. It's not physical. You know, the sound is being processed all the time. You have it there. You choose some things to pay attention to. You make them mean something. And that, that's critical because every person has a unique way of doing that. In other words, your listening mark is different from mine. And every human being is unique, just as unique as your fingerprints. Your listening is unique. So it's a grave mistake. And I would think one that's probably often made in teaching, coaching, training. It's a grave mistake to assume everybody listens like I do, because they don't. And we can prove this quite simply by thinking of a time when we have perhaps delivered some content as a, as a facilitator, as a trainer, and we've asked for feedback from the audience, and we get different answers from people who've been in the same room for the past 15 minutes, have heard the same content, but for some reason there's a filter, or there's something going on which somehow in the brain results in a different message heard and understood. Yes, we, we all listen through a set of filters. First of all, there's the culture you're born into whether that's your family, your local area, your town, your country, whatever it might be. There's the language you learn to speak, and that colors your listening. I mean, there are words for things in some languages which don't exist in other languages. And then the values and attitudes and beliefs that you accrete along the way. You put some aside, you pick others up from you know, parents, teachers, role models, friends, and so forth. And then you might have formed assumptions particularly assumptions about what goes on in other people's heads. And then in any given situation, you, you may have intentions or expectations, and you may have emotions going on, and emotions affect our listening hugely, which means listening is a dynamic thing. It's not static. It changes through the day. You know, if you're, if you're dealing with a, a group of people for a full day, your, their listening will be very different at 9 a.m. to the way it is at 5 p.m. Absolutely, yeah. Especially just after lunch. It's, you yeah. know, you'll know as professionals, that's the graveyard shift. It's very difficult then. Uh, they're much more you know, stodgy because the blood has all gone to their gut. Well, listening changes through the day in a group. You have a kind of gestalt listening. They all bring their listenings to the room. They may know something about you 
and there's a listening that happens in that room that you're speaking into. So that's one of the key concepts in my work, that you always speak into a listening. And you need to be asking yourself the question, what's the listening right here, right now, that I'm speaking into? We're going to look at some exercises which we're going to, what rather you're going to give us in terms of helping facilitators listening to this to become better listeners. Now, it's ironic that we're doing this through an auditory medium. We're not doing video today. This is a podcast episode, but that in itself um, highlights the importance of listening. And I find that something I can't do very well is multitasking. When I'm doing something other than listening to the answer from a delegate in a training session, um, I'm distracting myself from the core of what they're saying. So just to stress, listening is a conscious choice. And if we're not, as facilitators, listening, number one, we're not emulating the behavior we want people to reflect back. If we're not listening to answers from people in our training sessions or workshops, the reciprocity is we're, we're not going to get that back when we ask people to listen to us. And secondly, we're missing things. And as, as trainers, as people running our own facilitation, training, speaking, consulting business, um, we're also missing out on valuable feedback. There are things that we could improve. There are things we can do differently. So it's not just a case of, of listening to, to gather information, but listening to think of what can I do with this information that I've got and how does this help me to improve? You've got some interesting concepts here, one of which is the seven deadly sins of speaking. I like that. It sounds very uh, ominous. So we want to listen. And, and when we think of listening, we also think of what we do naturally as trainers, which is to talk a lot. And we need to strike a nice balance. So what are the Devin, seven deadly sins of speaking that you have to share with us? Well, let me, just before I go through the seven deadly sins. Um, let me agree with you very much that listening is critical when you're teaching. And it's a really good idea if you can have a supporter, someone, someone there who can do the doing, because it's very difficult to do the doing and the listening at the same time. You know, Scott Peck said you cannot truly listen to another human being and do anything else at the same time. So if you're preparing slides or messing about with a computer or setting something up, you can't really be with the people in the room. And that's critical. I, I talk about four C's of effective listening, which are conscious. In other words, you actually conscious you're doing something. It's not, it's not a capability, it's a skill and it's work. Uh, secondly, committed, which means put everything down and be with the person or people. The third is compassionate, which is very important, seeking to understand the other people, not make them wrong, not, not be right, but to understand them. And finally, curious. You might learn something here. <laughs> so those are the four C's of effective listening and, and very important to give it a priority and try not to be distracted by doing and speaking the whole time. It's said that, you know, said that Pythagoras used to erect a screen uh, in front of the teacher so that the first-year students who are called akusmatoi couldn't see the teacher because he considered seeing the teacher to be distracting from the real job, which was listening to learn. So there's some thoughts on the role of listening in a room full of people that you're teaching uh, something to. Um, the seven deadly sins, they're very common things, and I'm not saying they're, um, I mean, I, I, that's a slightly tongue-in-cheek description. I'm not saying they are to be avoided at all costs, and you're bad if you do any of them at all. But if they become driving forces in your communication, then it can Reduce your power greatly. They're like holes in the bucket. Your power just drains away. So the first one is gossip, which I define as speaking ill of somebody who's not present. It's not a very pleasant um, habit, and it tends to be also distorted or even uh, completely untrue because you heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody. Um, and we all know that when we walk away from the gossip, who are they going to gossip about? It's us, of course. And so, although it's quite seductive. And it's very present around us all the time with, you know, celebrity news and the so forth. It's it, Gossip is everywhere. Nevertheless, it's quite a good idea to try to minimize it, abstain from it, and be conscious of it at least. Second, we have judgmentalism or condemning. You know, the kind of parent whose child comes home and says, I got 95% in the test. And their response is, what happened to the other 5%? 
you know, the, the kind of person for whom nothing is ever good enough. Now, a trainer who trains by giving criticism the whole time, I don't know if anybody's seen the, the film Whiplash about drumming. There's a monstrous teacher in that who, who says um, the two most destructive words in the world are good job. You know, so he does not believe in praise. He believes in damning criticism to drive people on. Well, no, not really. I don't think that's very effective. And being judgmental is quite painful for the people around you. I mean, I know coaches like that. I know people who actually respond well to that, where they feel that if someone's too nice to them, they're not driving them enough. But but by and large, most people respond to praise. And as facilitators, we really need to be giving praise out where it's earned. It's a balance, isn't it? I mean, being nicey-nice doesn't work either, uh, but being just a, a monster is not very productive generally. And it doesn't get you invited back either, I'm sure. No, I don't think so. Uh, third, we have negativity, which is, um, you know, it's difficult to be around somebody. Now, I don't imagine most trainers suffer from this because they wouldn't be in the job if they did, but it's using the word no or not. You know, it's the kind of computer says no mentality where everything's difficult you know everything's negative you know no the sun's out it's going to be raining later you know if you're around somebody like that who's always negative it's draining and difficult now as a trainer you may get the people like that in the class and it may be challenging to deal with them come on you know you can do it but uh, certainly don't want to be like that as a trainer Uh, then next door to negativity you have complaining which is um, very common in Britain, of course. We love to complain. It's a national pastime, but that's okay. <laughs> it's, a cult- it's a cultural thing. <laughs> yeah. people, people like the crack a bit more there, maybe. But that's true. <laughs> in, in the UK, certainly we like to complain about the weather, you know, the government, the sport, and so forth. Now, I'm talking there about that kind of complaining. If, you're, if you get a bad dish in a restaurant, complain. You can do something about it. But if, it's, if you can't affect it, complaining is just viral misery. And it doesn't help. I'm thinking of a time, Julian, when a couple of years ago, I was doing some work with a large um, UK media company. And the feedback given to me at the time was that I turned up and I was giving out because the room wasn't set up the way I liked it. Now, the person who was organizing the training said to me afterwards, um, that's the only thing they said about me that day. And it's funny how just sometimes being a bit negative, although you've justification, can bite you on the behind because... It's it's funny how the brain, perhaps it's the amygdala doing its thing, but the brain seems to prioritize bad news over sometimes good news. And as communicators, we need to be, without being Pollyanna, where everything is wonderful and, and just perfect and delightful, that irritates me as well. We, we do need to have a largely positive bent because if people are coming to our training sessions, more than likely they are conscious of what they don't know, what they can't do, and there's this voice in their head telling them, Perhaps they're not good enough or they don't know something. We need to be the voice of of passion to convince them that there is hope and that there is a way. And, and this is exactly what the workshop's going to give them. You can. You can. Yes, that's the, the core message. And of course, if you come in and, and there's a lot of knots and um, so forth in the speech, then yes, you can set a... It's just the sort of energy that you set up, I suppose, being negative is from the word go colors people's first impression and that's then um, an attitude that that's you change the listening is what you do in my world um so that's uh, complaining then we have excuses well excuses are very unfortunate because if we get into the habit of making excuses it's never you know some people are blame throwers it's never their fault it's always something else happened it's it wasn't me um well you don't learn much then because you didn't correct the behavior. If it's never your fault, there's nothing you have to do. You just carry on as you were before. Um, mistakes are very important in innovation and in learning. You know, we all make mistakes, whether it's in a room, in front of a room full of people or on our own. Um, but no, we, we're not born perfect and geniuses at everything. So learning, as I have to explain to my six-year-old daughter, gets very cross when she can't do something first time. You know, <laughs> that's the process. Unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious competence, unconscious competence. We all go through those stages. And um, so uh, excuses don't help in that. Um, and then we have uh, exaggeration, which is sadly becoming more and more common with language. And I think this is something that trainers could watch um, because, you know, once upon a time it was okay to be excited 
wasn't it? Well, now we have to be super excited. Uh, excited isn't enough. Or stoked or pumped. Yeah. Well, yes, and it goes on. You know, words, words like fantastic and amazing uh, and extraordinary and awesome. I mean, that's the one I really get cross about. <laughs> they had a meaning once, mm. uh, but now they all mean just good. Uh, and so we're losing words at a rate of knots in the English language, unfortunately, which makes it harder to be expressive and articulate. To use some, you know, language like that as a trainer, as a as a coach, you 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 turn up and you're saying, "Today we're going to have um, an interesting workshop," and then people think, "Well, that's not passionate enough. I need to I need to hear someone to hear. It's got to be transformational. You're going to be you know blown away, etc." Life will change. Your life will change, right? Yes, well, maybe it will, but quite a you know, quite a small but important way, you know. But I think there is a there, there there's a strong um, there's a strong reason for being. Uh, precise in what we say. Uh, I mean, you obviously have to speak into a listening. And if, if I go on stage in America, which I used to when we traveled, and I've, I'm coming on to a big audience after somebody's been whooping and hollering, me coming on and being my normal self of, hello, everybody, you know, quite calm, is going to be a real downer. So I have to amp it up because that's the listening I'm speaking into. So you just have to ask yourself that question all the time. And if they require to be super, super mega excited, well, Maybe you have to do that. So that's the important thing is getting the ball over the net. However, being conscious of it, you know, it's just I'm saying if that becomes a habit in your language all the time and you're completely florid and excessive all the time, well, it does rather reduce your ability to be really <laughs> uh, exaggerated when you need to be, you know, to, to deploy hyperbole for good yeah, it's hard work, isn't it? Um, it also consumes vast amounts of energy. I've had people say to me, um, that I'm, I'm perhaps a bit more introverted, which is true, than other podcasters. So sometimes I come across as a bit um, not monosyllabic or, or, or um, let's say, downbeat. That's not true, but certainly perhaps not as hyperbolic or as um, on fire as some podcasters I listen to, where there's always this nothing wrong with being measured. You know, no measured. That's the word. In, yeah, in your speaking. I think it's a great thing, actually. And you can carve out a niche. And they even say it at the beginning, listen, guys, just so you know, I do not do hyperbole and ranting and whooping and hollering. Let's get to work. You know, it's you can make a differentiation there and actually engage people with a point of difference. And actually, there's a point, if I can spring in, Julian, again, um, just what you've just said there reminds me of, of a co-facilitation session I did a number of years ago. Uh, won't mention the trainer's name, obviously, but... Um, her style was completely different, and she had what I'd call this BBC children's television presenter. Everything was just, um, I don't know, uh, hey, now we're going to do this, and its I just found it draining to listen to her. Um, she was extroverted, and it's funny how there's this uh, almost dissonance between people out there who are very good trainers, but they're introverts like me, and, and she was definitely the complete opposite. And she kept on saying, she kept on referring to there being a difference of style. And I thought, okay, that's true, but it, it, there's nothing wrong with, with underplaying, with being measured. Um, and it's interesting how that plays out when you're co-hosting something. I'm not sure if you found that on stage. Maybe, as you've said, you've come off stage and the person just before you has had the, the audience on fire. And the next thing, this very measured Englishman comes out and... <laughs> i share, you, share a secret with you, Mark. The vast majority of TED Talkers, and I've met a lot of them, the people who've had really successful TED Talks, right up to and including Ken Robinson, are introverts. If you want to know why introverts are important, have a look at Susan Cain's wonderful TED Talk about the power of introverts. It's, it's key. So you do not have to be pretending to be an extrovert in order to teach people well. You need to make a connection, and that can be done in a quiet way just as easily as it can be done in a table-thumping way. And talking of table-thumping, let me give you the last of the seven, <clears throat> which is dogmatism. Dogmatism, my way or the highway. And this is very common in the world, unfortunately. It's the confusion of opinion with fact. You know, today is Monday. That's a fact while we record this. Uh, well, uh, my opinion is a completely different thing. I like Mondays, or Mondays are great, or Mondays are terrible. Those are opinions, not facts. And so often we state opinions of facts, and that, that's what causes a lot of table thumping and a lot of arguing and a great deal of the conflict 
in the world because people be become addicted to being right about things and it's normally opinions. So if we can be clear about that, it makes a big difference. So those seven things you've listed just now, Julian, they're your take on how to speak so people want to listen to us. If we're avoiding those sins, we'll call them that, we're more than likely going to get... Well, that's the dark, that's the dark side, Mark. I mean, that's not enough. Just avoiding bad things uh, or faults is not enough. Stands in four very powerful um, very, very powerful factors that really are the, the cornerstones of effective communication. And that is honesty, authenticity, integrity, and love. They spell the word hail, so it's easy to remember. Honesty, clear and straight in what you say. Authenticity, simply being yourself, whether that's introvert, extrovert, whatever it is. Integrity, doing what you say, following through. And love, which is Wishing people well, not romantic love, but simply wishing people well. You know, when you're in front of a group of people, it's about the gift you're giving to them. It's not about you. It's not about being affirmed or having everybody love you or getting great ratings. It's about the gift. Did I give them what I can give them? Did they leave with the gift? Yeah, and that's true. When when people look back on training sessions I've given and they've they still remember them, it's often how they feel about that transformation in themselves. They've come away now conscious of this shift in perhaps they, how they view things or their ability to do something differently. And I think the bigger the gap between what people can't do, what they now can do, that's, that's the sweet spot for trainers. So maybe a talk you give changes people's perspective, helps them to, to uncover ability they perhaps didn't think they have. And it's amazing how many people come into training sessions expecting to be disappointed. They expect a, a run-of-the-mill facilitation workshop and and the good trainers the good facilitators uh through listening through encouraging through speaking um take this person and and transform them um and i find often the workshops that are the most that resonate with me when i've been on the receiving end are not the ones where i've learned the most but perhaps i've changed the most yes yes i mean that's always what they say what they look for in ted uh which is a journey for the audience you leave in a different place to the place they were when you started. And that's true of the great TED Talks. They, they kind of shift your perspective. So although the world may be the same, you see it in a different way. Your relationship has altered. Those filters you referred to have changed. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to the exercises that you can give now people listening to this, if we can give some exercises, practical stuff, to our audience to help them to become better listeners, what comes to mind? Well, for listening, I think one of the most important to... Uh, to try on is the idea of listening from. So um, this is quite complex, and I go into it in great detail in the book and the course and so forth, but listening from a position, not a physical position, but a metaphorical position. So, for example, critical listening is a position, and it's very useful to us. It's analyzing, assessing. It's the little voice in your head, which is always there going, oh, that's interesting. Where did you get that from? I don't know. Do I agree with that? That little voice, the one that for anybody listening to this just said, what little voice is he talking about? That little voice, it's your critic and it's going all the time. But sometimes critical listening isn't the best place to be. Like when you go home, maybe you want to be into empathic listening which is suspending the judgments and the assessments and so forth, and being on the other person's island, feeling their feelings, and leaving them feeling not just heard, but understood and valued. And that's what it said we look for in relationship. Three things, to be heard, to be understood, and to be valued. And empathic listening does all three of those. So it may not be appropriate always at work. I mean, I have worked for some leaders who are very good at being empathic a lot of the time. However, you do need to, perhaps to be more discerning at work and at home, more empathic. So there's gender-based listening. I mean, men, and there's a lot of people who've written books about this stuff, um, men tend, not all men, not all the time, and I know this is a gender stereotype, so just <laughs> giving those flags. We'll put men, up a huge flag <laughs> here. <laughs> men tend to listen for a point, to, a, you know, to solve a problem, to arrive at a destination in a conversation. Women, on the other hand, not all women, not all the time, tend to listen in a way I call expansive as opposed to the way men do, which is reductive. Expansive listening, there's no destination in mind. It's simply being on a journey with the other person, 
and wherever it goes is wherever it goes and you're just being with the person well that's a that's a different in em- difference in emphasis which is at the root of a lot of he or she never listens to me problems in relationships so being aware of the listening you're speaking into is crucial in training and listening from the right position when you're listening to individuals who are seeking coaching for example that's also critical there are many many listening positions you can listen from fear from faith I and mean, fear has been where a lot of people have been listening in the last 12 months because of the pandemic um, and the effect on their life their business their health and so forth well listening from faith is being in the conviction all will be well in the end whether that's religious or non-religious and um, that's it's that kind of faith that things will be okay so being in a listening position is changing the filters consciously using them as control surfaces and that is very exciting because when you change your listening filters you actually change your reality you know we're never in the territory it's always the map it's always happening between our ears it's perception it's called we use our senses it's all put together in our brain and it's not reality it's an interpretation and you can change that interpretation by changing by moving your listening position consciously so that's a very exciting one to play with um the other great one i would use in conversation with people and that would be in play in a training room is rasa which is the sanskrit word for juice r a s a and in this context it's another little acronym stands for receive appreciate summarize ask receive appreciate summarize ask okay that's it the receive is look at the person who's speaking and face them with your body square on and give them your attention very rare that we do that you know so much of the time we're looking down tapping away doing something yeah i am listening no that's not really listening appreciate is the little noises or gestures that we make that show we're listening hmm. oh really that kind of thing and little eyebrow eyebrow raises and head bobs and smiles and so forth um the s so is the summarized word that's critical very abused word it means therefore and uh, i get very confused i mean there are people who've given ted talks they walk on stage and the first word they say is so that's right <laughs> what therefore what, what where's the logical flow here and this came out of the what's your name so i'm john you're john because i just asked you um so it's a very important word though so what we've all agreed is this now we can move on to that or in a conversation with somebody so what i've understood you say you're saying is this is that right yes you close doors in the long corridor of the conversation by locking them down with the word so and then the a is ask of course ideally and this is another topic all on its own questions which are open and neutral or clean which aren't agendered which aren't don't have a, a driving um, initiative behind them uh, just open question what did you think of that as opposed to how much did you enjoy that well, which is almost front loading isn't it it's almost oh, totally that's a driven that's a, i've got an agenda there haven't i uh, whereas what did you think is a neutral question and you'll get much more information if you're if you can ask neutral questions back from people rather than steer them i find using so helpful be- uh, the, the word so helpful because it's like a bridging word uh, it, it links something to something else but there are times when I, I actually do want to narrow down the range of possible answers to a question. And I think that's often, let's say someone listening to this is um, qualifying a prospect as a possible um, source of business. There are times when if I ask too open a question, I'm going to get all kinds of answers I can't deal with. So when we're asking a question, perhaps to understand someone else's perspective, we can be expansive. And when we're asking a question to steer someone towards a decision or to get a narrow piece of information to help reach a decision, I can be reductive or restrictive. The key is the key is always consciousness, Mark. That's what it's all about. All of this, listening, speaking, context. The key to the whole thing is to be conscious in what you're doing. So yeah, by all means, use steered questions. As I said in selling, in selling, you know, would you like, would you prefer this or that? Alternative close. That's not a, um, that's not a neutral question at all. Um, whereas um, a lot of the time, you might want to be open and 
um, clean in your questioning. So it's it's about being conscious in how you speak for a purpose, in being conscious in how well you listen, how strongly you listen to somebody. And I'm not saying, you know, every single time you listen to every person to use rasa, for example, only if it's an important conversation and you really want to know that you want the other person to know that you're listening to them. Rasa is there. Um, but a lot of the time, life's full on. You know, we, ha- we have to be sending that text or checking that diary thing while somebody's talking to us or, you know, scrambling an egg or whatever it might be. Uh, so it's not bad to be distracted as long as you're conscious that you're distracted. So Rasa, to me, sounds almost like preparing to listen. It's almost like the building blocks to do beforehand so people look at you and think this person is listening they're consciously and physically engaged and this is definitely a cultural thing the number of people i step into a lift with or i used to before covid who have their head down don't acknowledge don't greet people anymore and it's uh i think that rubs off in in a in a in the zoom session people now not making eye contact switching their cameras off it's really uh, disconcerting. And I'm minded of um, the expression in, if I can get this right, in Zulu, I won't, I won't give you my Zulu, that would just be embarrassing. But I think there's an expression called I see you, and that's the greeting. And, and that's just beautiful, because it, it literally means that before I can uh, be understood, or we can communicate, I acknowledge the fact that you're looking at me, and I'm looking at you, I'm ready to listen to you, I see you, I see you, you're here. Um, and w- in effect, the response for many people to COVID has just been this disengagement because we can't see people. We're now in Zoom rooms. I mean, right now you and I are talking, I can't see you. And over the course of evolution, that's kind of weird because the brain has evolved to hear a human voice from another human we can see. And it's only in recent history that we have technology which now facilitates you to be in your part of the world and me to be in mine without actually any understanding of what you or I look like or are doing with our eyes or faces or anything else. Um, so you, you mentioned context, which is the, the, the final point we'll look at today, which is uh, the third. You had speaking, we've had listening, and now we'll look at context, which is almost like the sonic landscape, or as you call it, the soundscape, which is the backdrop to, to, to effective listening. And I'm thinking of, say, trainers who are on Zoom or in Teams, and we don't know or have control over what other people's soundscapes is like. How can we influence the soundscape so our delegates, people in our workshop who are paying for our time, get the very best experience that they can? Well, let's divide physical and virtual. I I mean, I've done a couple of webinars recently on virtual communication, um, one for so many people who get it badly wrong um, with camera angles and light and sound and so forth. And then one for professionals where it really, really, really matters that you present yourself well, which covers, you know, the use of green screen and lights and external cameras and whatnot. So with virtual communication, I would say uh, make some requests of people. You know, training is a contract, isn't it? Like any conversation. Do you have these three hours to give me your attention? I'm going to give you information. You're going to give me attention. If we're going to do this effectively, that means that I need to request these things of you. A quiet room, no distractions, camera on at all times, headphones, ideally, uh, mute on at all times, and tell them how to use the toggle mute. I mean, I don't know if you guys all know, but in Zoom, for example, you can be on mute, and if you press the space bar, you toggle mute off, just like a walkie-talkie. Now, that's very useful to tell people because then everybody can be on mute and you don't have the incessant noise of those 10 people who forgot to put mute on and they've got children and, you know, whatever going on in the background. Everybody's on mute. And if you want to speak, press the space bar and it unmutes you while you're speaking. And then when you let go, you're back on mute, which is very useful. So little things, teaching people little things like that really helps. And it's simple things like don't have a light behind you have the window in front of you, you know, don't have the camera low down, uh, the, the the laptop low down with the screen angled back so it's shooting up your nose, you know, they're just the basics of presenting yourself well. I mean, they don't need to necessarily, but it's quite nice to teach them these things. What you do want is their attention, which would re- ideally be headphones, camera on, and that's the contract. And if they're not willing to do that, well, are they willing to do the training? Because they're probably doing their email at the same time. 
So that's something about virtual. Um, if it's a physical room, then I was always, when I used to do sessions in physical rooms, I was always very into the kind of zen of the room, making sure the room is set up absolutely perfectly and clearing it between every session. You only have a break for coffee for half an hour. You or your helper or helpers go around, clean all the tables, take all the dirty cups away, refresh the little bowls of sweeties, make sure everybody's got a clean pad and all that stuff, which means when they come back into the room, it's fresh, it's reset, it looks ready for work, and it doesn't have the detritus of the day gathering through the day. Uh, that, I think, is very important. So to really pay attention to the environment that you're creating, the learning environment that you're creating for people, and obviously you need a room that doesn't have interruptions, which is, you know, if you're renting in a hotel can be difficult because acoustics aren't always that great. And I've, you know, I've done talks in really big rooms to hundreds and hundreds of people where you can hear the next talker in a room. They put a, a partition down the middle and you can hear the next person just as well as me, which is challenging. Well, I've, um, if, if I'm thinking of a trainer I spoke to this morning in, in the Southern Hemisphere in Australia, and right now she said that um, they're back to training in physical premises. But for most of us, I'd imagine... Uh, in in Europe and, of course, the US. Right now, on Monday, 22nd of March, we're still in this situation where most of the training or facilitation we're doing is delivered remotely by Zoom. And I find that when I'm playing music in the background, particularly when I give people tasks or I suggest to a group of people, here, look, here's a track you can play. Uh, play this one of you in a breakout room on Zoom. Somehow sound seems to enhance productivity have you any thoughts on that? Because I'm conscious that one of the things that you do is you advise organizations on on the science behind using sound to enhance, you know, concentration and productivity. Yes, we have a, a whole product range called Mood Sonic, which is all about soundscapes in workspaces. And it's scientifically shown to enhance uh, both well-being and productivity or effectiveness. And listening to? Uh, well, yes, I mean, it lift effectiveness in the sense of not being distracted by people you don't want to hear because noise is the number one problem in modern office spaces when we go back to them. Um, and that is all about unwanted conversation, overhearing people, because you're, you're absolutely designed to decode language. You have no ear lids and it's impossible <laughs> for your brain not to get involved. In I this wonder thing. if some people actually do have ear lids. <laughs> uh, well, they don't, but they may, they may not pay much attention. Nevertheless, uh, if somebody's speaking behind you, they are really taking up a lot of your audio bandwidth and you only have bandwidth for around 1.6 human human conversations. You know, there's very, very few people that really can understand two people talking at the same time. It's impossible for the vast bulk of us. So it's very distracting. Unwanted conversation is the number one issue in modern offices. And if you can mask that, which we do with biophilic sound, uh, which is much, much healthier than machine-generated noise, which has typically been used over the years, um, then what you're doing is reducing the, the level of distraction and allowing you to focus better on the person you're listening to or the voice in your head that you're listening to when you're trying to work on your own instead of being distracted by somebody talking 10 metres away, uh, which you don't want to hear. So, yes, sound can be enormously influential. I mean, this is a huge topic and we probably don't have time to go into it, but um, there's a question of how distracting sound is. You know, a lot of people working in a noisy room will put headphones on and put music on. Well, that's fine, except what you're doing is replacing one distraction with another. Music's much more pleasant than other people's conversation, but it's still distracting because it's dense. It's calling for attention. There's not a lot of music that was written not to be listened to music's intention is to be listened to it's taking cognitive bandwidth so you have to be careful about the kind of music i mean some music is written to be in the background ambient music um anything that's very slow moving or highly repetitive your brain will go okay i know what that's doing and not pay much attention to it whereas if you're talking about you know jazz classical music pop music with with particularly with vocals you can't do that. It's very difficult to have it on in the background with taking bandwidth. I see where you're coming from, Julian. I would say that when I think when I think of the times I've been hyperproductive, let's say in, in even in traveling, and I think this is one of the things that 
people who work for themselves have to become very good at, which is taking every moment that they can. Not doesn't mean working all the time, but taking key moments, for example, downtime like transport between links if you're flying. That's when we fly again. Um, I'm thinking of the times I've been really productive. It's been on long-haul flights. And and why? And I thought, hmm, perhaps it's the sound. It's, it's I'm constrained in the seat. I can't go anywhere. I can't make excuses and let myself be distracted. And there's nowhere else to go except up and down this big aluminium tube in the sky with wings. But I find often the sound of the jet engine, for some reason, helps my concentration. And this is ironically why on on uh, Spotify, I have a, a list, a playlist of white noise which I listen to, not waterfall, uh, not rain or water, that doesn't work for me. But interestingly, jet engine noise seems to stimulate this concentration. And I've spoken to other trainers who've said the same thing, that you know, when they have something uh, almost, not, not monotonous, but it's something that doesn't have a peak and trough, uh, like music would, but it's just this constant drone, that somehow helps them to concentrate more. And I find this also with workshops, when I give people some kind of music, which is ambient, um, particularly when I'm giving them tasks to concentrate on. Some people have said to me, that's, that aids their completion of the task. Well, you're talking about sound, which is low density. And that, that was what I was just saying, that if a sound, a density is how much attention sound is calling for. And if it doesn't change, it's not calling for any attention at all. In fact, you will physically cease to hear it after a while, even though it's going on, uh, if it's really, really constant. Um, but this is all very personal. So what works for you? That's terrific. Uh, there, it's very difficult to make rules about sound because we have personal preferences and everybody's listening. As, I, as we started off, everybody's listening is unique. So in your listening, uh, then jet noise is a very productive sound. Other people find it very painful or uncomfortable. <laughs> That's true. So you know, we have to experiment with this. And I mean, I can tell you that the scientific principles of the thing are that you want to seek out something that's low density. And I can also tell you that there's a mass of scientific research from all over the world that biophilic sound, whether it's gentle water or birdsong, is extremely good for us, as well as very good masking. So it's good for our health. It reduces uh, blood pressure, for example, uh, in and uh, it's used in all sorts of therapeutic settings. So there's a great number of studies now. Um, so it's worth experimenting with. I mean, the sound I would tend to recommend to people if you want to work with headphones on is birdsong. You know, it's, the birds have been here a lot longer than we have. And it is um, stochastic. It doesn't change much. It goes on all the time. You're not going to listen to individual birds. It's just a backwash, but it's a very healthy backwash. And it tends to be easy to put aside and work to. It's also nature's alarm clock because it's time to be awake when the birds are singing. So we associate it with alertness. So, um, and, 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 you know, when the birds are singing happily, things are normally okay. So it makes us feel comfortable and secure. So there's a lot, there's a lot to this, but the most important thing for anybody, if you're talking about designing the soundscapes around you in your home, at work, wherever it might be, is to experiment with what works for you. I have no doubt there are people out there for whom death metal is an working <laughs> environment. You know, that's fine for them. It wouldn't work for me. <laughs> it wouldn't work for most people, but it is very individual. Whatever does it for you, whatever helps you to be a better facilitator, communicator, whatever helps you to be productive, that's what's key. It's finding out what works for you. So what Julian and I have shared today is really uh, a great starting point for reflecting on on your power to get people to listen to you. It's your ability to be better at listening to other people. It's, it's thinking of what tools do I have, what, what techniques, what information tells me what my listening is doing, how, how good a listener I am, and, and often asking for feedback from people, do you think I'm a good listener? And I find that's a great helpful question to ask on an evaluation form, you know, how good do you rate my ability to listen to, to you? Because a lot of trainers just think that our role is to be the, the, the source of communication, which is true, which is true. But, but often what people like is someone who has graciously listened to them and given them the feeling that they count, they're relevant, they're important. And I find that when I make training conversation like your chat and my chat today, Julian, I get more from it and they get more from it than just where it's 
all the talking comes from the person at the top of the room on the stage, which of course, I guess, with Ted, because of the format, that's bound to be the case. Yes, but um, I mean, the, the biggest tip I've been given about virtual communication and, and one that's consistently given by people who do this expertly is to engage other people by giving them the opportunity to feedback. So it's not one way track the whole time, but you have break rooms, you have polls, you have also the raise hands, you answer questions at various times. So people have the opportunity to engage in a two-way dialogue. And that is what the best training would be all about to me. Absolutely. Where can people find out more about you then, Julian? Well, I'd love to offer you guys uh, something free, actually. If you go to my website, juliantreasure.com, you can pop in your name and email and we'll send you a link to a 50-minute video that I made with a friend of mine who's a top US speaker coach where we dissect my number five of all time TED Talk how to speak so that people want to listen. So we stop the video and go, okay, and what I did there was this, and what I could have done was this, and that's a principle. And it, it really does tease out an, an awful lot of the principles of powerful speaking. And uh, so I hope you find that, and that's absolutely free. So I hope you find that interesting. And then if you, if you do that, you're also on my list, and that means you get a 25% discount on anything that I've ever done, which is available commercially, including the big course, how to speak so that people want to listen, which is seven and a half hours of material online. And, you know, if anybody wants to master these tools, that's the place to go. Julian, thank you so much for being my guest today on the Training Business Podcast. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's been a pleasure. My sincere thanks to Julian for being my guest today. And of course, a massive thanks to you for your time tuning in again this week. This is the podcast made for you by someone hopefully just like you, someone running his own training business, which is me. And I'm all the time keen to listen to your feedback. If you've got critiques, some suggestions for guests or topics, content, please keep these coming. You can contact me directly via mark at trainingbusiness.com. And I do welcome all feedback, all correspondence, because I read them personally and respond to them individually. And before I go, I want to thank you for your time, but also to set you a challenge. And the challenge that Julian and I want to set you this week is to think about how you have signs that people feel you are listening to them. What tells you, have you perhaps asked for feedback recently, what tells you that you're not just making sense when you're speaking, but you're also having an effect and you're doing this by listening to people so what confirms to you that this is an outcome? This is something you're actually achieving. I'll leave that with you. Think about that between now and next Thursday's episode. You can subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform of choice. You have a range of podcast platforms out there, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and many, many more. But until next Thursday, when I look forward to your company next time, please look after yourself and loved ones. Keep safe, keep training, and keep having fun. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Go to trainingbusiness.com and subscribe right now to be notified of great competitions, upcoming VIP episodes, and amazing special offers to help you succeed in your training business. See you next time.